It was like little fatbergs of XML, wasn't it? Like- <laughs> I, can, I can see from your notes you're a big fan of soap because it's, the notes say a stepping stone of awfulness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name's Josh Nesbitt and I'm joined by James Hall. And today we're going to be talking about modern API design. Cool. So today we're going to be talking about API design. Yeah, so um, I guess it probably makes sense to start with what is an API? An API is an application programming interface. And it's it's basically like the glue between different applications. Yeah. It's the way that you that you talk to another application and the, the publicly exposed documentation and yeah, I think it'll be good um, during this kind of chat to define what an API is and isn't. Um, I think it's often slung around as a kind of term for many things. Um, so I guess it's good to define what an API is and, and kind of how they came about, I guess. Yeah, well, they're, they're not new things. No. So they've been around since the 60s in, in a certain sense. So you could always call different bits of functionality without knowing the actual underlying implementation. Yeah. So you'd have a function name and you pass some stuff into it. And that was kind of like the early API sort of work that, mm. that went on. Um, but yeah, people have been doing that for for a long, long, long time. So yeah. you'd have syscalls um, that would do certain stuff with the screen or the printer or whatever else, talk to a serial port. And mm-hmm. yeah, they started out pretty basic. Yeah. And then we sort of move over into the 70s and 80s and you, you're starting to get these remote procedure calls. So it's where you have connected computers, so over a network, mm. and you can call bits of code as if they were part of your code base. Yeah. So you you, you've, you basically just call a function, pass some parameters into it, and you don't have to worry about it being over the internet. Yeah. It just, it just works, which kind of caused a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, because people would then start using the same tech for local um, local calls, RPC yeah. calls, so you'd end up not really knowing where the security boundaries were. Mm. And the old school internet is all like gentlemen's agreements, like mm. um, like we trust that there aren't any bad actors, and yeah, yeah. like the whole way DNS works is insane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, it's it's all very much like ah oh, yeah, everyone's a good guy on the internet mm. or girl, sorry, and. Yeah, Microsoft really gave RPC a bad name by just wanging everything in there, and people just just went to town. On it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's a real shame because if you think about the developer experience for RPC, um, actually it's quite nice. You know, it yeah, there's very low overhead to calling remote um, services versus local. Um, but as you said, the the opaqueness of of not knowing what's going on behind the scenes is is quite tricky. Yeah. So then people started thinking a little bit more. Well, yeah, there was Corba, Com, Decom, um, all those kind of things that for t- distributed calls. Um, but it was really hard to get good interoperability. Mm. You had to have similar program languages on each side, like the, the caller and the callee would both yeah. be written in C or Java or whatever. Um, and it, it was really hard to get sort of good interoperability. Um, so a load of smart people got together mm. and they invented 
the world's most awful thing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was soap. And if you're not familiar with soap, this was a fir- real good go at making something they thought would be good. Mm. So you'd have a beautiful XML definition of what your API is, and then you'd have these big fat payloads with all sorts of extra fluff that you didn't need. And yeah. you, you would really struggle doing this bare. You'd have to have some sort of awful soap library <laughs> to interact with it, and then no one would be fully compliant. And, yeah, it was just an absolute nightmare. I don't know if you've ever worked with soap in the past. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's an interesting... Interesting idea, I was going to say, <laughs> because yeah. what what they did is they abstracted a lot of the dangerous parts into definitions of things, uh, into you know pure kind of syntax that wasn't able to execute without uh, you know the kind of wider system, uh, which is, in itself is quite a, quite a sensible idea in terms of trying to remove people doing nasty things. But what that meant is you had a really verbose document um, for everything you were trying to do. Yeah, yeah, and because it didn't. It threw away anything to do with the internet. Mm. It, it threw away all the good stuff like cache headers and mm. anything that was good <laughs> and just made these big fat blobs of, um, yeah, it was like little fat bergs of XML, wasn't it? Like, <laughs> I can see from your notes you're a big fan of soap because it's, the notes say a stepping stone of awfulness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot of the time to, to make something good, you have to make something truly bad. I think so. I mean, I, you know, I think if you're looking positively on it, it was an evolution um, of, a, of a more dangerous time uh, and, and it kind of helped pave the way for a lot of things in the future. So I think often you have to do things wrong to figure out how to do them right, right? Yeah, so it was it, it was heading the right direction. It was packets of information traveling across the internet. You could It was separate from the programming language. Mm. It was abstracted away and you could serialize and deserialize it in any language, which on the right tracks. Yeah. But and XML then, is verbose by nature, I guess, in that yeah, sense. So. Yeah, and then and then the RESTful API started to to sort of emerge. But before it was called RESTful, mm. it was just people going, I "Don't really like soap, but should we just expose this XML document?" Mm. Um, and then people invented stuff like RSS, mm. um, which was just a simple XML format. Yeah, um, and. Yeah, people go, actually, it's not too bad. Mm. And people started to go, well, we could actually use the HTTP verbs on top of this. Mm. So get and put and post and and actually make them mean different things. Yeah. And we were getting there. And then suddenly, JSON <laughs> happened. Because <Yeah. laughs> people were like, XML's pretty cool. Um, and then it was Crockford, wasn't it? It came up with the idea of a, a, a subset of JavaScript, which is mm. just, yeah. Yeah, JavaScript uh, object notation, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I guess um, he was sick of XML <laughs> and yeah. wanted a more kind of native um, language to communicate, not language, I guess, format. Yeah, yeah. Kind of language. Like a, like a markup language, I yeah. guess, yeah. And the the cool thing was, it was all at this exciting time where we were, we were all like getting to grips with uh, XML HTTP requests yeah. or AJAX. Mm-hmm. And we would get very excited about loading in data into pages mm. without reloading the whole page. And JSON just sort of fit the mold. Yeah. Um, and then I think sort of REST, a public API started sort of launching around sort of 2005, like mm. as proper, this is a nice API. So the Google Maps API was a biggie. Yeah. Um, and then 
Yahoo came up with their pipes product. Yes, I remember. Which where you could sort of you, it had a cool thing where you could actually drag and draw little pipes to join things together. It was quite cool. It was it, it's kind of like an early ift kind of style thing, I guess, in yeah, terms yeah. of how you connected stuff. Um, take an RSS feed, do some stuff to it. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was cool. Bugging um, out as Jason. The thing I liked about Jason is obviously if you were if you were writing JavaScript anyway, you already knew it. Um, yeah. So that was quite nice. Yeah, yeah, and um, you just paste it into your console. Yeah. Well, at the time was Firebug. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have a built-in console yeah, in your course. browser. Yeah. Um, yeah, REST was um, rest, RESTful interfaces and everything were, were kind of my my primary um, interface with APIs at that time. Like kind of my, you know, most of the things that I was working with REST, um, Rails added loads of REST um, support quite early on in, in, in the days of Rails. So yeah. Um, it became the way for, to build APIs for me, uh, which was which was great because it's quite quick to get things moving. Um, yeah. Well, can't in Rails can't you just return like a hash or a, yeah, and then it just turns it into JSON for you and stuff. Yeah, and then there's loads of nice um, kind of syntactical sugar in Rails to make working with REST APIs really nice in the roots. Um, so as you mentioned, you kind of HTTP verbs and everything and was all just really nicely supported out of the box, which nice. was good. And then people just blindly returning the whole active record with yeah. with the secret fields on that's the one yeah here's your hash password knock yourself out <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah and yeah exactly we've all been there um but yeah so that, that's that's good so but yeah we it was a bit of a, a sort of renaissance if you like people getting excited building cool stuff mm. and then everyone started to grow up a bit and go right actually there's good and bad ways that we've learned to do this mm. and because my very very early APIs were awful. <laughs> yeah. Like they they change on a whim. There wouldn't be any sort of logical structure to them. Mm. Um, things like Rails and that that way of doing things sort of made you break it down into controllers and actions at least. Yeah, um, I, th- I, th- I think initially it's kind of like the first thing is how do I get this data out of the database or something like that or how, or how do I perform an action? I don't think you really think about the the surrounding experience to achieving that. You just kind of like give me the data or yeah. or whatever else. Yeah. Would. The problem is when you introduce other people, as tends to be the case in life. In every walk of life. <laughs> um, so although APIs are meant to be called by computers, they need to be understood by humans first. Yeah. Otherwise, it's pointless. Mm. Um, so focusing on the end user and who's actually using it. And I quite like this. I think we've talked about this in previous podcasts, but like the documentation-driven development mm. where you write your readme first, yeah. basically, and then... Does that make sense? And then stub out the the actual endpoints. I often um, follow a similar route for um, application routes because you know yeah. there's a really great article. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was about your URL as an API. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of designing that URL structure for how you interrupt that API is very similar to that documentation, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, once you've written it out, you you want to get it right. So a cheap, quick readme first. Is, is going to be really good because if you put an API out there, mm. people start using it. Mm. Changing it is awful. Yeah, or you're going to break loads of stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. move fast and break things. <laughs> yeah, which uh, yeah, which often happens. Certain industries are worse than others. <laughs> yeah, so we've got a client at the moment. Uh, we're just doing a bit of an audit on their thing and they have a, the very first API that they launched years and years ago uh, and they have to still support it forever mm. um, and you have to then... Yeah, if you reactate everything underneath, you have to make another layer to support that API. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's it's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 
And I think companies like um, like Stripe have done it really well, where they sort of version it by they they've got date versioning as well, haven't they? I think uh, I'm, I can't remember because I haven't used the actual API directly recently, but I think they actually had the version number in the root of the API path as well. Because yeah. um, that you know that's something I learned probably similar to you um, quite a few years ago, you know, add versioning from the start, even if you never get off version one, because often you never increment it that, that often. Yeah. But put it in there because if you need to introduce breaking changes, um, you don't want to knacker everything at once. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, that's just made me think about a project that we're starting in the minute that hasn't got that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's lots of... Um, <laughs> oh God, quick, I'm going to have to quick, change it. <laughs> quick to do. <laughs> add that to the list. Um, but yeah, yeah I mean... I guess the problem is with like internal APIs as well. Like they, they do, they don't see as much care and attention maybe as like a public API. Mm. Like if you're building both the front and the back end, mm. and you're building it in tandem, you might be a bit more fast and loose with it. Um, but I think it's better to have a little bit more mm. formality around it. I mean, I guess it's worth mentioning here that we're primarily talking about web APIs here. Yeah. Um, obviously, APIs can also uh, be related to, uh, you just saying internal there made me think about it, but you know, APIs can also be the way that you interface with a library or anything like that. Yeah, so. yeah well, that, that's true. The The internal structure of an application, figuring out what's publicly callable by the rest of the app is pretty mm. important. And if you're like me and you dig around code bases, then you're going to, you know, React's a really good example of this. You know, there's formal APIs for you to to work with React. And then there's like, if you dig underneath, you can be like, oh, but if I do this, this works. Yeah. But it's an unofficial API um, that may break or change at any time. Yeah. Well, the React API and the way that things work is really, it's really good because it makes it very difficult to shoot yourself in the foot. So you can only pass data around in certain ways. Yeah. You have to use a state store or you have to pass it in through params. Mm. Um, quite difficult to do the wrong thing. And then if you want to render just bare HTML, they have that really well-named dangerously set yeah. <laughs> in HTML or whatever it's called. Yeah. And you have to write the word dangerous, which we've talked about before, which I think, is, although it looks bad, it's meant to look bad. <laughs> yeah, it's meant to feel wrong, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you feel like you're doing a bad thing and mm. it's bad, then you, you're going to be extra careful. Yeah, and, and the same applies to... to Web APIs, right? You know, you're like you're saying, documentation during development, or, or thinking about the user experience, the developer experience. Um, you know, if, if you if you make it really easy to do something right, then that'll be the way that is adopted. Um, if you make it really difficult, people will probably find really creative and interesting ways to use your APIs to get what they need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so moving on to Slack, so they launched. A, as you know, a hugely successful developer platform. Everyone was building their own apps on top of it. Yeah. But the very first version that they released was, um, it's basically the API that they'd built for themselves. Oh, right. Because they were, they were originally an agency built the app in PHP, MySQL, and they used something for their messaging in some Java thing. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um, but they, to rewrite the front end, I think it was a big pile of jQuery and I think CSS it was, yeah. stuff, <laughs> yeah. which is how you would quickly build a thing at that time. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and they were like, ah, we're going to have to untangle all this. So they built a really quick API for themselves. Mm. And they were like, oh, actually, we could expose some of this to third parties. Yeah. But then there was no like permissions or anything. So you, you, if you <laughs> yeah. are an installed app, you get everything. Yeah. You can see in the channels and yeah. stuff. So, yeah. So they, they had a bit of a hard time. Um, sort of re-architecting that and moving everyone away from it. Hmm. Whereas GitHub API, 
they started off with the nice REST APIs. Yeah. And at the time, they were like, this is really lovely. But then they just kept adding more and more fields mm. and more and more stuff. And these payloads just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when they started to rethink their external third-party API, they mm. were like, it's, they don't need all this data. Um, so they actually switched across to GraphQL, mm. which I think is an interesting idea, which we've talked about in the past, especially when you're not able to talk to the people that are consuming your API or know all the use cases. Mm. Um, it's a way overkill if you're just building an app for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I guess with GitHub, especially because you know a lot of the a lot of the responses were huge, right? You, you know, you're getting all the data for everything you're requesting. Um, repository um, payloads were growing quite quickly, if I remember at the time, because you know a lot of the commit data and all that sort of stuff was pretty hefty. Um, yeah, and I guess. It's a developer platform as well. I, I guess. I guess the interesting thing there is, it's, it's specifically a developer platform. Like yeah. the kind of apps that are going to be integrated with it are very different to, say, Slack, um, where you know they had quite a rich add-on architecture, but it was quite self-contained in that way. Yeah. Um, like I don't think you'd really. I don't think you have as much access to Slack's API as GitHub's. Like I don't think you can create lots of users and manage the whole organization through their API, can you now? Oh, yeah, I don't think you can, actually. So whereas GitHub was like, here's our entire platform, and yeah. you can do it within your own you know, organization or space, um, yeah, yeah. but you could do pretty much anything on there, I think. Yeah, it was pretty flexible, wasn't it? Mm. Um, I mean, the GitHub API, the GraphQL one that they developed for external devs, um, they loved it so much that they ended up rebuilding their whole front end using mm. that. Yeah. Yeah, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I I really like GraphQL, especially for um, for reading data from from servers. GraphQL is obviously very good at aggregating data from different services as well. Yeah. Um, if you, if you bring uh, building those APIs, I've never loved the mutation side of GraphQL. No, it, it feels really clunky. Uh, um, that's one thing I love about REST. Um, the kind of verb way of interacting with um, the API made a lot of sense to me in terms yeah, of those common operations like create, read, update, etc. Um, mutations in GraphQL feel a bit heavy-handed. Feels um, like a bit of an afterthought to me. Yeah, because um, it still feels like you're reading data, but actually you could be doing something really, really destructive. <laughs> yeah, and I guess the other issue with GraphQL is performance. You don't know how much data people are going to request or how nested Yeah, or where from. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it might take... 10 seconds, 30 seconds might take some of your APIs down for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, caching's, um, you know, historically quite hard in that way because a lot of the payloads are, are wildly different. Um, it's quite hard to look at caching patterns in GraphQL services based on, especially with something like GitHub, where I imagine there's so many different use cases for those integrations. Yeah, because you have to basically compose an entirely new request for people. Yeah. Um, whereas with REST, you could... If people were looking for exactly the same thing, you could serve them the same thing. Yeah, I, I remember in um, in the kind of second iteration of it in Rails, you could you could be selective. You could be like, only give me these fields, and you started to see that kind of bridge in between where GraphQL was starting to come in. Yeah, and it, that, that must have been the route that Facebook explored when they were building the mm. mobile apps. Um, yeah, because there was that Open Graph API where you could go, give me this field, this field, this mm. field, um, but they just they chucked it all out and invented something completely new. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, um, yeah. So, so what other good examples have we got of, of APIs that have kind of really worked well? Well, the the two that main, mainly stand out for me are Twilio and Stripe because the API is the product. Yeah, it's that's their whole bag. Mm. Um, so Twilio, 
although they have been sort of going into the UI space recently, mm. they were traditionally it, it was I want to send an SMS and I want a really nice clean API. Yeah, the, the it's kind of a breath of fresh air both those products because I don't know if you've worked with any sort of lesser known payment gateways, but they're always awful. Yeah, I've got the I've got the burns from Braintree, <laughs> <laughs> but like they they're half documented. They mm. don't work the way they expected uh, expect you to. They ship you a zip file with some PHP four in it and hope that you'll manage <laughs> yeah. to cobble it together. Yeah, and it's just like help. Whereas it, it's, the thing about that is, it really it's one area where you want to be like, I know this works and I know why. <laughs> Whereas some of it was very much like the abstraction wasn't there for you achieving the task you came to achieve. It was yeah. kind of like, well, here's, you've got to do the authorization and do this and that and say the card and whatever. It's a yeah. bit clunky, wasn't it? Well, and and then the worst news came when um, 3D Secure came along and yeah. everyone had to patch that into it. Yeah. Um, so Stripe was really one of the first things that I saw and thought, fucking hell, these guys have got it right. Mm. Not only was the marketing site beautiful, yeah. but it didn't, it didn't hide the techie stuff either. Yeah. You were a click away from right right into it. This is how it works. This is the nitty gritty. Yeah. Before you, you don't have to sign up. Like some some people hide their dev docs. And that means, by the way, that their product is awful. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but Stripe were like, no, we're proud of it. You yeah. come have a look. Yeah. Um, if there's a, dem- if there's a uh, call us to get a demo page, you've, you've got a problem then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, by call three, we'll set you up with an account where you yeah. can log in and then you can peek under the hood. Yeah, we'll send you a PDF with the docs in it. Yeah. And hopefully by then you're too invested to back out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, you know, Twilio was was amazing. You know, both Stripe and Twilio simplified a quite a complicated industry at the time. So yeah. telecommunications in terms of any sort of APIs was an absolute shit show. Yeah, SMS APIs were awful, awful and yeah. but most of them were flaky as hell because people were using it to send out spam. Yeah. Uh, notably, some good ones. Uh, one in Leeds, AQL's API was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, everyone else's. It's like, upload this CSV in yeah. this weird format <laughs> yeah. and then we and might send them out. <laughs> no one wants to integrate with that legacy hardware either. Like, some of it's really fiddly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Stripe, it's interesting recently. They've gone the other way where now there's loads of no-code options for Stripe. Yeah, yeah. So they've gone the other way where they've, they've really got developer confidence through that initial product. Yeah. And now the devs are like, yeah, but the no-code's really good and easy. Yeah. I've seen a few startups recently where they've you press a button and you directed to a, a Stripe-hosted page. Even yeah. Don't even bother putting the logo in or anything. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I don't mind because it yeah. works and it's really nice. Well, also, I think um, Stripe is synonymous to a kind of trust as well. Yeah. Um, they've done a really good job with building that brand. Uh, you know, developers are, are quite hard to convince a lot of the time. So yeah, yeah. the fact that you've got devs on board selling this product into companies is is powerful. Absolutely. And their rates are negotiable um, if you've got enough volume as well. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's really expensive. It's not yeah. too bad. It's not. You just need to, if you're spending a lot of money through Stripe, you need a good account uh, account exec or something yeah, like definitely. that to look after you. Um, but yeah, so so Twilio and Stripe, fantastic examples of, of APIs there. Um, yeah. And then there's loads of other stuff that sort of, loads of patterns that we were doing that didn't have names yet. Mm. And one of those was webhooks. Um, we were calling them callbacks and stuff. Like I remember early 
PayPal integrations. I should have to think how awful those were. But <laughs> yeah. You'd 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 redirect the user to a nicely branded PayPal. Well, I say nicely branded PayPal looked like ass to begin with, didn't it? <laughs> uh, PayPal page. <laughs> yeah. Put your deets in, and then to verify, they would send something to this other URL later mm. to, to to check stuff. Mm. Um, I mean, that was sort of like early webhook, but then it sort of came a bit more standardized. People were like, well, actually, you need to sign it because it could just be from anyone. And yeah. and it's all got a bit more standardized now, hasn't it? Yeah, that which is which is welcomed um, yeah. because I remember a lot. Yeah, a lot of the early, there's loads of really interesting times with webhooks as well. I used to build a lot of them on Heroku yeah. um, until Heroku became awful. Um, but the problem with that is that if they're unauthorized uh, and authenticated, <laughs> you've got bots just calling all these webhooks. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there's very much a need to wrap authorization and authentication around them pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. Some of the, the challenges we have with webhooks is local environments. Um, and I think the best sort of get-out-of-jail-free card for me is Ngrok. Yeah. Get, get an ngrok thing i don't know if you if you've not used it before go get it now but you can basically make a public facing url for your local environment yeah which sounds terrifying but it's not too bad <laughs> yeah I, ngrok's it, it's great um and a lot of the um modern like i think netlify might have some sort of tunneling in that way where you can preview local things on the web these days and all oh, sorts. Right. Nice. um but the first interaction with something like that for me was finch uh, oh, which is yeah. what our pal uh, nick payne nick Payne made um, yeah, sadly isn't around anymore. Um, but it was it was a really nice product, uh, lovely UI on it, and it had some magic beans in where it made things like dodgy WordPress installs and other things just yeah. work out the box yeah. by passing hosts in and all sorts of stuff, and a little Mac toolbar as well. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a really lovely app actually. Yeah. Um, but I can see why that would become a nightmare to, to look after. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, so N- Ngrox um, is brilliant. Uh, it definitely helps with a lot of that sort of previewing uh, local things. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, before WebSockets sort of came about, we were doing some pretty awful hacks with um, like basically long-running HTTP requests mm. and you sort of flushing the data. Yeah. So I remember building like a live chat prototype. It must be like 17 years ago now. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you would just have one request go out from the browser and it would just wait yeah. And then you would from the from the server end you'd just push flush some data through. But never close the connection basically. Never close the connection, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh it's live. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And I think people come up with various names for it. But it was basically a kludge. Yeah. I mean yeah. before that you were doing long polling as well, like all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. Which I guess is similar, but Yeah. Well you could do yeah, in early browsers the best thing to do was one request out wait until you had some data to send and mm. then flush once and end right for browser compatibility mm. but then some browsers were able to read the stream in flight and yeah. things like that but yeah if you do an ie6 you'd just wait for the whole request to come back but slowly mm. which was and then you had i don't know if you ever did the kind of consistent polling where you just do like markers of last time that you requested something and yeah trying yeah. to do the delta and oh god it was awful wasn't it, <laughs> it was <laughs> Yeah, just secretly refresh every five seconds and take your server down a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, Pusher came along, though. I don't know if you use Pusher oh, much. Yeah, I love oh, Pusher. Fantastic. I used it on the talk on Tuesday. Oh, nice. Just I knocked together basically a type form where you type an AI prompt in, and you can do type form to Zapier to Pusher. Nice. That's like a few clicks. Yeah. And then in the front end, just grab the prompt, 
actually did a bit of a hack because there's no API for Dali yet. Oh, right. So it drives a, a, a testing framework, Puppeteer, to drive a browser to <laughs> nice. put the prompt in <laughs> secretly in the background, grabs the images out, puts it back in Pusher. <laughs> nice. And then out. But that's like, it. you can knock that together in a day and it's not too bad. Yeah, and that's that's a good sign of how far we've come, I think. Um, yeah, Pusher is great. If you haven't used it, it's just, it's basically serverless websockets before the word serverless was invented yeah um but you'd have a rails app and i think to get to have a host for websockets in heroku was a bit of a faff because you have to have a long running process yeah and you, it wouldn't work load balance and all the rest of it so you just yeah. grab a pusher account it was like a little add-on wasn't it yeah you just, yeah, add it onto you. You just had it on yeah and it just just worked yeah, yeah. but would still recommend push it to this day yeah, um, we, we used it um, on a project that we worked on, actually, um, for the NHS. We built a big um, learning platform for them. And uh, as part of that, they had these big discussion rooms. So for all the programs where you're learning, um, you know, going through your learning content, um, it was an area for all the attendees to, to discuss that content and get help. Um, before Pusher, that would have been a nightmare to build. Um, but yeah. we managed to get it out the door in like three weeks, I think, or something. Nice. Um, Really, really good. Yeah, so the benefit of Pusher is just the, the dev, dev experience was amazing. What I love about Pusher, right from the beginning, is the way they designed the API and the way that they they designed the sort of onboarding page. Yeah. So you pick what language you're using at one side, mm. pick which language you're using on the other side, and you can basically copy-paste yeah. into your app yeah. and go. Yeah, it was basically. amazing. You know, you especially with the JS library, because... They'd literally generate the snippets for you. So, yeah, yeah. are you going to read from a? You're creating a discussion forum or something. Yeah. Here's the code. Here, start start off with this, and then see where you get to. Yeah. And I'd, if you if you've got a public API and you can get someone going like that, mm. definitely recommend. Well, auto genning their little snippet to pop 100%, in. Hundred percent. Because if if you're giving them code to start integrating with an app, if that's in a pull request or ready to go, they've bought your product already. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you want the dev to fold it into the code before it's had proper proper approval yeah. from the company. We need to get the billing sorted for this because we're now built. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, around we're over the free limit. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly how it worked. We push it for me, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, they had the free plan that would, it, it would go for a bit, wouldn't it? And then yeah. it expire and then oh, the app's broken. Yeah, you'd be like, Quick, oh. get the credit card out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't need salespeople if it just breaks the app. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah, push a really good example of all that sort of stuff. Um, so, um, so just thinking about kind of API functionality and, and kind of things that you should consider when building good APIs. So, you know, webhooks and, and everything, REST, RPC, all history is really interesting. But if you're building a, a modern API today, what sort of yeah. considerations do you need to make? Well, the main thing you need to think about is caching and rate limiting. So people will and can abuse your APIs. So you yep. can use things like CloudFront, API Gateway, things like that. You can stick things in front of your API that just make it infinitely more resilient. If you if you if it's a public API, it doesn't need a key or anything like that. Mm. Let's say it's just some data like an exchange rate, for example. Yeah. Um you could yeah, you could just put a, a CDN in front of it. Mm. Um but a lot of things have, have come out recently around sort of standardizing rate limiting. Mm. So setting certain named um, headers so that libraries know when to back off and mm -hmm. not not sort of keep, keep trying your API. So if you have like, let's say you have 
I don't know, a, a products API and you've got a million products mm. and some some one of your consumers wants to go and grab everything for some reason. Mm. Um, the, the nice use of a rate limiting header means that the library will just chunk through at the speed that you want it to. Mm. So you can, you can plan for all the, the capacity that you'll need. Yeah, because uh, a good example of that is if you're paging through loads and loads of records, um, yeah. it could seem quite DDoSy, I guess. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, it's interesting that because in the in the early days um, with rate limiting, certainly from my experience, you'd use something like Redis, uh, maybe as a, as like a API hit cache or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know where you'd start to try and understand account usage per. Um, you know, authorization header or something like that. Um, now we've got really interesting trends happening where you're seeing a lot of this moving to the, to the edge. So, you know, Cloudflare workers, for example, yeah, loads of baked in functionality with things like that, where you, Cloudflare is obviously amazing. It's half the internet by now anyway, which is yeah. fantastic. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's interesting seeing a lot of these things, especially that X rate limit, limit header and stuff being standardized is, is huge um, for developer productivity. Yeah, definitely. And the good thing about pushing stuff to the edge is, your edge worker, either it's like Lambda or Edge, if you're using AWS, but a lot of people are using Cloudflare, aren't they? Yeah. You can get that to do the authorization bit mm. and go, yep, they're good. And then the next layer down is a cached response. Yeah. And then yeah. you, you're basically not having any performance hit for having an authenticated API. Yeah. We're definitely seeing that kind of layered approach to building apps where some of those things are abstracted away from the app completely. Um, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, Netlify, I know I mention it a lot, but it's a great platform. Um, they've got lots of great kind of additional functionality to wrap around your app, around authorization, plugins to certain services. It's it's quite a nice pattern. Ace. Yeah, definitely. Because you always end up with the same logic in all your apps, don't you? Yeah. So it's nice to not worry about that where possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, we did a lot of work with sports stuff in like scorecards in, in the past. And we'd have... But we'd basically do it in the simplest way that we could make it work at the time, which was polling. Hmm. And one of the things you have to avoid doing is if there's an error, you the devs goes, oh, there's an error, we'll just try it again. Hmm. And what that does is if there's hundreds of thousands of people watching a live stream <laughs> yeah. and your server has a bit of a wobble, it will then get attacked by all those clients. <laughs> We learned this the hard way, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is a man of experience. Yeah, you can't spin them up quick enough to, uh, to to do that. So there's a lot of good libraries you can use which have exponential backoff built in. Yeah. So if you get a 500, you shouldn't try immediately. You should try yeah. in 10 seconds and then 20 seconds and then 40. You'll see it. You used to see it when Google Mail used to go down all the time. Mm. Like you'd have a little counter at the top, how many seconds, and it, you'd see yeah. the number keep going up and up. Yeah, especially if your um, your kind of infrastructure is self healing in that way, you just need to give it a moment just to stand back up again. It just needs a bit of moment to breathe. Yeah. People are already frantically refreshing. You don't, you <laughs> yeah. don't need your your code killing it as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, so so earlier on, um, you know, rate limit, rate limiting, exponential back off, all those sorts of things is really good. But the most important thing I think is is documentation. You mentioned it earlier. Yeah, absolutely. So, what is design if you haven't documented it? It's just it's not designed at <laughs> that, that point, a, is it? That was a very kind of <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were going to go deep there. I thought you were going to go very thought leader, and I was quite concerned. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to bring it back down to earth. <laughs> but we talk a lot about. Uh, API documentation at Parallax, and it it varies from project to project, but the best thing has been 
sort of swagger and open API, if there's yeah. a way that you can automatically generate that from your code base. Yeah, and then, it's in sync with your code base. Yeah. Then do that. Um, some of the energy company stuff that we worked on, um, one of our devs who leads at the back end to the engineering team, um, he'd actually written some code where if you add a new endpoint to the application and you haven't documented it, mm. you can't deploy it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Which caught me out. Because <laughs> I, I was just going to sneak a quick endpoint in there. And uh, it was like, nope. And I'm like, that is correct. That That's is brilliant. Good. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, I yeah. really like that on that project. Obviously, nice. each project, each team is going to be different. Yeah. But it does stop people like me going in as like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> quick. <laughs> I'll just quickly add this endpoint. Oh, no, it's not in the swagger definition. Yeah. That's great. And then you have to document it, which I should have done anyway. Um, One rule for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But you know, you can you can do the bare Billy basics like this is the endpoint. But really, you should be showing example inputs and outputs, multiples. Some Mm. sample code in there would be good. Um, Just basically, if if you've got other people that aren't you using your API, you have to assume no prior knowledge whatsoever. Yeah. They don't know how your code base works. They shouldn't have to. No, sometimes you don't even know how your code base works. Well, exactly. <laughs> so. If if these endpoints need calling in some magic order, you've yeah. probably done something wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, which you'd often find in a, a really dodgy API. Yeah. Um, but it's meant, there's not meant to be any statefulness in the in these APIs, ideally. You're not yeah. really... what They're meant to be like one hit, so... It does a thing. It should do that thing. It shouldn't need any. Yeah, I mean, it's literally called state transfer. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, just make it as simple as you can, and just document. If there is any weird stuff, just document it. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things that I really love about Swagger and Open API is it's a really good tool for teams to communicate with as well. So whether they're used as the API or not, um, you know, authoring documentation like that or, or using Open API as a common format to communicate how things should work. Yeah. Is really powerful. I've often used it when um, taking on new code base. Reading the open API definitions is a really good way to get up to speed with what the intent was of the author of that API. Um, so you can try and stick to that intent. Um, it's really powerful. Um, it's you know there's there's loads of really good tooling around it. Um, I really like the format, uh, the YAML format of, of defining everything. Um, you can do some really clever YAML tricks to reduce um, repetition and all that sort of stuff. Um, nice. But yeah, it's great. Yeah, you can sort of have a little fragment that you re-reference again and again, yeah. can't you? Yeah, yeah, really good. YAML, I have got a love-hate relationship with. Um, <laughs> I, I just find it sometimes a bit awkward to deal with, but it's yeah, it, it's better than a big XML doc, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think my preference would still be like JSON, YAML, XML, yeah. um, <laughs> in that order. Um, if I had to rate my favourites. Um, <laughs> What's your favourite, Mark? <laughs> Um, but I do, I do like YAML because um, I, I think I'm also conditioned to it. Rails uses YAML and Ruby uses YAML quite a lot in a lot of libraries. But yeah. I, I do quite like the the syntax of it. I quite like the way that some of the the kind of tooling around it works. I'm quite a big fan. JSON is valid YAML as well, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Which, which is, is even better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think what I really like about the Swagger Open a- Open a- API stuff is all the tooling around it. So once you've got this. Um, open API spec you can actually generate uh, documentation with a little demo thing mm-hmm. in you can you can you can your IDE can understand it and you get little hover over prompts and stuff yeah 
Um, you can just get a lot of nice stuff for free. You can even generate SDKs. Yeah, um, yeah, which is pretty cool. Uh, one of the one of the best examples of that early kind of playground that I saw was Facebook. Um, yeah. They had some really nice tooling around their APIs initially, um, and more recently, it's become the kind of open open graph playground or whatever they call it, where you can yeah, start to mess that. around with that. Um, but yeah, all that sort of tooling that gets people interacting with your API and showing them the correct way to use it is really powerful. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, some other tooling that I quite like that wasn't on my notes, but I'm just going to go off on a bit of a tangent. But there's a Mac app called Paul, which I really love. Paul. Paul, P-A-W, like... Uh, I thought you said Paul. Paul, <laughs> yeah, it's called Paul. <laughs> All right, Paul. <laughs> but I really like this for reverse engineering um, stuff to play around with it. Yeah. So in your browser, you get copy as curl. Um, so if you go in the network tab, you can right-click on the API request that it's made, copy as curl. Mm. You can paste into Paul. Right. Um, and it'll... it'll It'll fan it all out in some nice little tabs. It's like beautifully designed. Oh, nice. Mac app. I think one of the speakers uh, that was at Aldo Hayes and I working for the company that makes it. Oh, really? Well, um, I can't remember what her I'm going to have to look into that. But anyway, um, you can tap into the body, the auth, the options, headers, nice. play around with it. You've got a little request response thing. And you can build up your own documentation. Oh, cool. Um, and then you can export it as C Sharp, Ruby, oh, JavaScript, wow. and it'll. It'll just make you a little code snippet. That's really cool. With all the variables in. So it's like, um, I don't know if you've ever used Postman for Mac. It's like that, but yeah. on crack, basically. Yeah. yeah. it's the, the main advantage of this is that it's really good at um, taking in stuff that you've imported and chucking it out in different formats. Nice. Well, I think Postman's only recently added that. and It's, not, it's never been quite as robust for yeah. me, but... I don't know. Maybe it, it is now. It was always just a kind of API request um, creation tool, wasn't it? Or things like that. Um, not to discredit it, but yeah, I think it, it sounds like um, Paul's something worth worth looking at. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then you can export it as Swagger and stuff if you want. Great. Um, but you're not really designed. I, I would maybe I would design an API in Paul. I've not really mm. thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to just use it for tinkering with stuff. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, I'm debugging something or. I'm coming into something fresh and something weird's happening mm. um and i just want to play around with the request yeah that's 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 i think it's quite a fun way to um to start to discover things as well it's a good exploration mechanism as well um yeah, and and it's good if the api tells you that you're trying to play with it wrong <laughs> like if something's not working it's, it's good to get that kind of hint from the, the api yeah sometimes you just get a 500 with nothing in it yeah or worse a 200 with an error in it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep because uh, then the code you're calling it from you don't can't use your try catch stuff yeah. that's another thing about api design you your status codes need to be good yeah, they're, they're hugely important. Um, spending time making sure you're returning the correct codes um, with some useful error messages or um, particularly one thing that, that people get wrong quite a lot is if it's a JSON API, for example, not providing enough data in the error response for you to actually do something sensible with it. Yeah, definitely. Um, something that Laravel does out of the box, which I hate, is you've got <laughs> an API and sometimes if you don't pass in certain stuff, it, it won't error. It won't give you the right error message. Like if you don't put content type application JSON, mm. it won't give you JSON. It won't give you anything. It's like, why do you do that? Maybe they fixed it in the latest release, but uh, yeah. Is, is that because it's like hitting hit the middleware before it even gets to the controller action or something like that? Or? It must be, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, just better de default errors out of the box would be good. 
Yeah. Well, you know, as you're saying about that um, that rate limiting, if you're not giving developers, users of the API um, hints on on what's going on, um, people are just going to keep using it incorrectly or in the rate limit example, just hammering your API and probably taking more services down possibly. Yeah, definitely. Oh, there's another API that I hate. Um, I won't name them, but uh, they return a 201 and they have assigned a special meaning to that <laughs> rather than putting it in the payload. Oh, wow. Um, and it's something that you could easily miss. but. Wow. It's it's a difference between one one entirely different workflow and another. Oh right! And it's it's a payment gateway, and I hate it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry if you're listening. <laughs> but, but if you could just fix that, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, just put it in the response, maybe. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's you know. It, it's all about um, context, isn't it? So in some areas, it might be more efficient to return just a, just a header, but you need to provide the information in that. You know, there might be a special header that's telling you what's going on or yeah. it doesn't have to be in the response necessarily, but you have to say what's going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, like, I don't think 201 has any particular... What's the meaning of a 201? I'm going to Google this. I thought 201 was created, but I might be wrong. 201 is created. Yeah. Created success. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like it wasn't doing that. They return that if you need to do 3D secure. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, what have you created at that point apart from a big problem? A big problem. Yeah. yeah. A horrible iframe with some other bank's <laughs> gubbins in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. There are some horrible APIs out there. 3D secure in in its entirety is, is a horrible thing. I don't understand why... They've just gone against everything that's sensible. So you can't see the padlock. You can't see no. where it's from. No. It's an iframe. Yeah. It could be any phishing site. It's horrend- One of my favorite things recently is that uh, Monzo have just gone, no, we'll just, we'll just put a fake thing there for now and just deal with it properly in the app. <laughs> and just be like, just go to the app and sort this out. We'll, we'll have, you, have you moving on quickly. Possibly. Yeah, we've sent you a push notification. Yeah. That's, that's a nice way of doing it. It's nice. And you're not putting potentially private i remember you used to have to like put your whole postcode in oh, like, it was horrendous wasn't it yeah. like mem- letter one of your memorable thing and my like- favorite part of 3d secure <laughs> was when you hadn't set it up and for the first time as it's asking for the authorization it asks you to register it yeah how is that secure <laughs> you've got a little mini registration form <laughs> yeah. inside yeah. and you're on mobile and you're trying to buy something yeah. that you don't want to buy anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah. I hate everything. <laughs> just just end. I bought the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, you know, a good example of where API design goes to serious loss of revenue because people hate it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so is there anything else that we've missed around APIs? I feel like we've covered quite a, quite a nice selection of things from, from history to yeah, features. Yeah, I think there's loads. I think one thing I'd say around pagination maybe is that the best pagination APIs I've seen, they give you if they're cursor or offset based, they just give you the URL of the next yeah the next one, so you can write a really simple while or um, yeah well, you, your code just becomes way simpler then because you don't have to think about yeah their implementation and you can then change your implementation underneath if you need to yeah if it's page one page two page three to begin with and then you realise that the way your database works. You might have to change that to a cursor or whatever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Cool. Thanks, Josh. That was a good chat around API design. Thanks for joining us on Offscript. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Subscribe.